This is the Radio Check Podcast, life in the concert touring industry. Okay, and welcome back, everybody. And here's my brother, Chris, and our wonderful guest for the day. Um, just uh, on a side note, you just, uh, you know, just got finished up with an amazing um, session with uh, TPA, the Tooling Professionals Alliance. And uh, boy, I'm just coming down from a, a buzz right now, but really loving the direction that the industry is going in. Uh, I know I'm just jumping into this, but again, just couldn't help but say something. Uh, because I, you know, loving this podcast and loving the people that I'm meeting and, you know, loving the change that we're seeing, uh, hopefully for the better in the industry. And so with that, hello, brother Chris, how are you? I'm good, Matt. And yeah, we just, we just finished uh, an epic TP, TPG, TPA session uh, where Matt talked about health and wellness uh, to, to the group and it was fantastic. It was really, really enlightening and and uh, I was, I was uh, basically blown away. So very cool. Thanks for doing that for everybody. I think I impressed yeah. my brother for the first time. That's great. No, heavens no. You know, <laughs> you're, you, 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 you can cook better than me. You can ride a bike better than me. You can, you know, you can lose weight better than me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, you have better hair too. That wasn't always the case. I, I was once told that you had the best hair in rock and roll by more than one person, by the way. So, yeah, well, yeah. oh, I anyway. agree. I agree. <laughs> hey, I hey let's, agree. let's introduce that voice. Yeah, let's. Okay, the, the, today, today's a, a, a guy that's been uh, a friend of mine uh, going back, I'm going to say right at 30 years, I think, somewhere around that. Uh, uh, and he is somebody that I really welcome to this podcast because not only can we talk about our friendship and, and whatnot, but this man, and I'm putting the pressure on, this man's pretty funny. This guy is this guy is pretty funny. Not only funny looking, but but funny talking. Um, so we have uh, God. How do you introduce what this guy does? Because he's done so many things. So I'm just going to come out and say uh, what he's doing currently. Um, we have the tour manager for Elton John with us, uh, who's done so many more things than just tour managing Elton John. Uh, Mr. DC Parmet coming in from rural Seattle. Hey, man. Good afternoon. Good morning. Good evening. Whenever you may be viewing this, yes, yes. So it's 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 good to see you, man. I, I know we ran into each other a little over a year ago in Australia. You were there with Elton. I was there with Tool. You were playing the huge fuck off arena across the street, and I was in the uh, you know the little tennis center on the other side of the street. So, but uh, I definitely, you know, whoever plays the bigger venue, that person has to visit them. So it would have been odd for you to leave the stadium to come visit me in the arena. So it was only right that I left the arena to come see you in the stadium. I mean, that's, you won, you, you had more people in a bigger show. So, you know, I, 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 I bowed to you that day. And I appreciate that. I really do. I appreciate you taking the time to come across the street and see us because I know what it's like during the day. And I know it's impossible sometimes to slip away and even take five minutes for yourself. Just yeah, to totally chill yeah totally but you know it, it was totally fine i think we were doing a couple nights in the arena and it was uh I, I don't think we were doing a show build so i was i was able to pop over and you know i just wish i could have uh, seen the show you know the the big elton john goodbye yellow brick tour or whatever whatever you guys are calling it the goodbye the goodbye tour 
Jerry we're well again. Brick Road. Well, Brick we're going to be in William. New Orleans on January 19th next year. So we've Ooh. got a couple of days pre-production. So you can come on down. And, you know, if you help out, we give you a black t-shirt. Oh, wow. You know, I mean, I, I would rather be working on my own by then, but if but I'm not, uh, by all means, I will be your, I will be your New Orleans uh, tour guide for sure. Our New Orleans ambassador. Yeah. So uh, Elton, he, he, you were in the middle of his goodbye tour and when the COVID hit, right? Yeah, I really pushed things back a couple of years because they had this fantastic plan all laid out of territories we were going to go to and everything. He was hitting on all cylinders. The tour was going fantastic. Business was great. You know, Elton was really happy with the show. And then all of a sudden COVID dropped anchor. Yeah. And so, so the, the, the tour was meant to be what, 300 shows, the, the final. Yes. And how many did you get through? Hold on a sec. I just looked at the set list today. I think we were halfway there. Um, I think we, yeah, I think we were halfway there is what it was. Does the, does the plan change now because of COVID or you just carry on where you left off and just finish the dates that were booked or, or is there a whole different outlook to, how Elton will move forward? Both. We will finish the dates that we've moved. We're supposed to start in Berlin on September 1st, but who knows if the Germans will be ready. So, you know, we'll find out how much of Europe we can do. And then January 19th, like I mentioned, we start in North America and finish April 28th. And then there's more stuff headed your way. All right, right. So 300 shows could turn into what? Another another couple dozen, another I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the longer he plays, the the longer your career is. <laughs> Correct. Correct. Right. I'm hoping okay. people will remember me. <laughs> okay, so we'll 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 get back into Elton, but you know, I think we should we should start back to you know how we how we met, you know. I mean you're sitting here in front of me. You you you've you've got a Billy Gibbons beard. Um, you're, 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 you know, you, you look age appropriate, but when we met, you know, in 1991, uh, Ozzy Osbourne, you came out as the tour manager for Ozzy. You and I both started with Ozzy at the same time. It was his no more tears, no more tours, no more, whatever the fuck he was trying to do. Um, but uh, you were much different then. You had a head full of hair and do I dare say you had an awful mullet as well, if I can remember correctly. Well, you know, if you didn't rock the mullet in the 80s and the very early 90s, then there was something wrong. Yeah, yeah. Short on top, wrong in the back. <laughs> Business up front, party in the back. <laughs> there you go. Okay, so you and I started working for, for, for Ozzy together. Uh, Ozzy was doing No More Tears. That was, he, was, he was planning on retiring. I think that was when he, he stopped, you know, tree, well, he, he, the, for, for the first time in earnest, tried to stop doing drugs and drinking and, and when his health was in really poor condition and and uh you know he thought that he would do one last tour so i think he meant it for it to be a, a final tour 30 years ago um mm -hmm. but uh you know i guess his health got together and 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 uh you know the desire to see ozzy osbourne grew and uh, it became a thing and, and you and i went on that ride yes we did yes we did what a great ride i remember you know, I love working with Sharon Osborne, and that was the first time I ever worked with her. 
and she is amazing to work with. Whatever needed to be done, whatever suggestions you made, if it was a great idea and she was behind it, she would totally champion it. But Sharon is one of the smartest people I've ever worked with, and I would love to work with her again. So Sharon, if you're listening, if you can just hold off Ozzy's tour till the end of the farewell tour, I'll be there the next day. <laughs> yeah, you will. Yeah, I, I agree on Sharon. She's a, a very, you know, I mean, smart, but also clever and wise. And and you know what? She can and she can push back as hard as anybody. I mean, it always happened behind closed doors. You never really saw it, but you heard about it. You know, it's that, you know, there's just a genuine kind of fear of, of, of Sharon out there because she's, she's, you know, she does, she speaks her mind and she's tough. She's Sharon. What can you say? I mean, she's one of those one word celebrities because that's what she's become now with her TV appearances and her book and things like that. She's become like Cher or Elton, you know, she's a one word celebrity or yeah. one name celebrity. She, she's kind of our one word celebrity on our side of the barricade, kind of like, kind of like Jake and Opie. We, there's Sharon and there's very few, very few people who work in our industry that, that, that are, that are go by their one name and everybody knows who they are. Charlie, you know, those kind of people. Yep. So that was, was that your first time tour managing? Um, what, what did you, what did you, cause I know you, you have, you've got an accounting background and then was, was Ozzy the first time you were tour managing or where would you come from before that? Well, I first started in 1985 selling T-shirts at the old Compton Terrace, which was basically oh, a wow. dust bowl right off of I-10. So just east of Phoenix, and it was right next door to Firebird Lake, which was a man-made lake, which they used to race those hydrofoil boats or hydroplane boats, whatever you call them. They're right. really fast. They have like the two noses, and they have giant engines. But anyway, I sold t-shirts there. And then my next summer there, I met somebody from Winterland. And I said, you know what? What does it take to get out on the road? What does it take to get a job doing this? So the guy, David Barksdale, gave me the number of Winterland. I called him up, sent him my resume. They said, I tell you what, we'll fly you up. If we like you, we'll pay for your ticket. If we don't like you, you're on your own. So I went up to San Francisco and met with Bucky Bratton, who in the merchandise circles is one of the godfathers of merchandise. He is an OG. And he hired, or he, we met, I showed up in a suit and a tie, and I had my little anvil briefcase <laughs> with the anvil and rubbed off like everybody, everybody had in the 80s. And I rolled up there, met him, and then a couple weeks later, he said, you can be somebody's assistant on the Peter Gabriel So Tour doing merchandise. So I took that opportunity. I did a, like a year or so as people's assistants, and I ended up getting some tours on my own. And one of them was Little Feet, which was fantastic. You know, I got to ride on the bus instead of having to drive the rider truck. And it was just a great way to end my merchandise career. And in 87, on another tour, I met a tour accountant named Rusty Hooker. Oh, right. That's what he goes by. So he's pretty famous in the business. He's another one name, you know, touring guy. So he taught me tour accounting. And I started doing tour accounting in 89. And I did that for a year and a half. And, you know, uh, Rusty got a call to he needed somebody on Aussie so I was hired and I thought I was just going to be the tour accountant but 
instead. <laughs> he said, oh, you're the tour manager too. Oh, wow. Thank God for Paul Chevaria because he really was a huge help to me and really helped me navigate the waters because I had done some of the stuff on my own, but not everything. So he was a huge help to me. And then after that, I got the Soundgarden tour and where we worked together. Yeah, again. We, we, we went parallel. We went from we went from Ozzy No More Tears uh, over to uh, over to Soundgarden, Bad Motor Finger together. That's correct. And then after that, I left Soundgarden and was the tour accountant for Michael Jackson's European tour. And at that point in my career, I continued to shuffle back and forth between tour managing slash tour accounting and just tour accounting. Right. And when I was hired to work with Elton, when I was hired by Keith Bradley, another amazing man, so fortunate to work with him. He is so smart and such a great manager. Somebody's already taken the name Keith, though. I mean, he, he can't be known as, uh, uh, you know, one man. There's already a Keith out there. But yeah, Keith Bradley, legend. Yes, he, he is a legend. And I ended up, um, I was the tour accountant on Tina Turner. And Elton was starting right after that. And Keith, you know, Keith had his group of regulars that he worked with. And he, he recommended me. I went into management and the business manager. And before you know it, I'm flying to Atlanta to meet Elton's band. And on that tour, Keith had me look after the band. And at that point in time, he did all their travel. I just had to get them in and out of the hotel and things like that. So I started taking care of the band. And when Elton switched management in about 99, we ended up, um, you know, Keith had more managerial duties. So I ended up doing more and more and more. So suddenly I went from tour accounting and looking after the band to doing tech kills and on sales and labor calls, and dealing with the catering. So as, a, so as a matter of course, I became the quasi production manager, the tour accountants and the tour manager. <laughs> that all rolled into one. And uh, here I sit today. That's kind, that's kind of a, you know, for how we tour these days when there's somebody for everything, you know, having that much responsibility on, on such a high profile project, you don't, you don't see that anymore. No, you don't. And we are not overstaffed. In Europe and outside of North America, we have a production assistant. But in North America, I'm the production assistant. Really? So I do the guest list. Uh, I have the keyboard tech, Tony Smith, not the Genesis manager, but the other Tony Smith, my Tony Smith. He sets up the office and makes sure the internet's working and he's sort of our tech support. And then it's up to me to run the office. And then at the end of the night, when he's loading out keyboards, I load out the office. And, right. and you're, so you're also uh, handling all the tour cash. You're settling with the runners. You're, you're doing all of that. Correct. And then advancing <laughs> catering and advancing labor and, and still the road manager for the band. I mean, how, how to, man, that, that, that's, that's a full day. Well, we have now, we have a production manager, Pete McPhee, who anybody that's done Blues Fest will know Pete. He's pretty famous in Australia. You know, he's called Sneaky. He's never snuck up on me, so I consider myself lucky. But <laughs> he has taken that over. And it also helps that AEG is producing the tour. So we have the same promoter rep in each oh, gotcha. city, John Merritt, who is fantastic. I don't know if any of your listeners have worked with John, 
but he's just amazing. So once we get everything set up and get the labor calls started, the tour in that respect kind of runs itself unless there's, you know, an odd situation like a Madison Square Garden where your labor call is going to be different and things like that. And obviously the rigging calls depend on Mike Gomez and what he feels he needs, who we both know, Chris. Yeah, Mike Gomez, world, world-class world rigger, absolutely. That's it. But um, now, in addition to the office and the tour accounting and the band travel, I do the guest lists and the meet and greets and things like that. And it's just... Um, I'm used to it now, but I have a certain schedule and a certain time that I do things during the day. Like I meet with the building at two o'clock to go through their expenses. And if I keep on my schedule, I do just fine. Yeah, you get it all done. Yeah, yeah, make time for everything, get it done. Because you, you guys, you guys, you guys sell every ticket and every venue you play. It's not, I mean, I mean, you're, you're, you're kind of looking for inventory almost everywhere you go, aren't you? Yeah, we are, once we get into a venue, we can, you know, free up seats. And that's the thing. I always have the box office take a waiting list, especially on the farewell tour. And a lot of times, you know, we reduce our band holds and promoter holds and venue holds. We're able to fulfill the waiting list. And that's, um, that's something I learned from Keith. And that works really well with Elton. I mean, yeah, that's a great idea. Have such high demand. Yeah, I mean, you can, you know, over, over the course of a tour, I wouldn't be surprised by by that exercise. You can, I mean, it's not out of bounds to say you can create an extra million dollars worth of revenue over over the course of a tour by by doing these releases and finding these extra seats that you can sell and, you know, reducing the band holds, et cetera. Yeah, I, I, I see it every day. Tickets are money and your inventory has a very finite expiration date. If you're in town on Thursday and, you decide Thursday night to release tickets, you're just wasting money. Yeah. So it's like getting, you know, the stuff that's freed up, let's say move the mixed position back another six feet and get a couple of rows. It all adds up by getting an extra couple of shows. Right, right. Hey, let, let, let's let's go back in time a little bit. Uh, I know, you, like we were, we were saying earlier, that you and I both did Soundgarden together. I, I remember one day I, I woke up to my a text and it was from you telling me that Chris Cornell passed. Um, and this was well before it made the news. You did, you know, cause you, you, you know, you're, you're still a Seattle guy. You're still in touch. Your, your wife, Sherry is, is dear close friends with uh, Susan Silver who, who used to manage Soundgarden, Chris's ex-wife. And um, so you're, you're, you're still in pretty close with the whole Seattle mob, aren't you? Yeah, I'm still, I still see Kim Thiel every now and then, and I see Matt Cameron every now and then. And, um, I do see uh, some of the PJ guys from time to time. So, yeah, well, what part, what yeah, part of Seattle, Seattle do you live in? Close. I live in Redmond. It's the same zip code as Microsoft. Oh, okay. Excellent. So you and I did the Bad Motor Finger Tour, which, which was kind of the tour... I wouldn't want to say that's the one that launched uh, Soundgarden, but you know, they, you know, it had Rusty Cage on it and uh, uh, Jesus, Christ Jesus Christ Pope was it outshined, you know, I mean, those were the, yeah. that was the record that really kind of broke them. And you, you and I d did some theater stuff with them, uh, a lot of headline stuff. And those shows were incredible. I mean, what a mighty band at Bad Motorfinger, you know, they, 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 
you know, they just really didn't hit commercial success yet because I think the next record uh, was the one that, that, that broke them wide open. But, you know, Bad Motor Finger, man, I just, I just think of those shows and just how incredible and how heavy they were. And, you know, the, you know, Chris is wearing shorts with knee high Dr. Martins and, you know, and just playing that droney kind of black Sabbathy kind of, you know, it was just an incredible thing to, to be there for. Cause we, I wasn't quite sure what I was witnessing at first, but I think the significance of it creeped in pretty, pretty soon after it started. Definitely. One of my favorite memories of 92 and working with Soundgarden is we played the Warfield in San Francisco. Yeah, and I, I remember that. All the way up to the very top balcony. And it was between songs and Chris was talking to the audience and then the band started playing a song and it was like someone turned on a blender on the, fo- on the floor. There's bodies going everywhere and there's moshing and all kinds of stuff. And I'm like, you know, those were the days you could have used an iPhone to film that because nobody... I mean, it was such an amazing spectacle that it's like, okay, I get these guys. I get them now. It took me a while because of the personalities and the music was much different than I was listening to at that time because I did not want to admit to them that I loved hair metal. Yeah, you were were listening to Yankee Rose at the time. (laughs) uh, Not quite, more like Dawkins. (laughs) <laughs> do you you know everybody everybody uh, associates eddie vetter with the guy who who used to climb around and do really crazy shit you know I mean, but chris cornell was doing that before before eddie i remember pretty active remember know, that remember that theater show we did somehow chris made it over to the side of the stage climbed on the pa and and jumped up into one of those uh opera boxes on the side of a theater you know those little you know, the little boxes that are sticking out of the theater of the wall and close to the stage and jumped into the audience from, from an opera box into the pit. I mean, feet first with knee-high Dr. Martins. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, do you remember? That, I think, I think he, he heard a girl one time. And, you know, I remember, do you remember? That uh, was at the Riviera Theater in Chicago. Yeah, and I, I just yeah, remember, I remember lawyers that. coming to the gig and we were all deposed. And, you know, that was, that was crazy. But, Actually, you know, Chris, I was deposed when Soundgarden played Red Rocks. There was an incident with Ben Shepard in one of the local security in the pit. And I had to give a deposition for that. So you can count me as a hostile witness. <laughs> you know, you know, Ben, Ben was pretty bizarre. I remember being out at the front of house watching the show. <clears throat> Mark Nafisi, he's uh, mixing front of house. And, and I'm standing next to Mark and watching the show. And I didn't even know Ben went missing on stage. He just, all of a sudden I look around, he's standing next to me at the front <laughs> of house. The band are playing. And I went, oh shit, there are only three of them up there. And Ben, and what, what are you doing standing next to me at the front of us during the show? And he just was there a second, and then he went back to the stage and then put his bass back on and, and continued playing. And I, I just thought that was really bizarre. I remember another time he he played the bass. I don't know how he did it, but he stuck his hand down his pants and stuck his fingers out through his fly. <laughs> and was playing the bass with his fingers through his fly hole. I mean, uh, well. Very unique individual, Ben Shepard, and very talented man. Oh, man. Could he carry carry the load? Do you also remember at the end of the Soundgarden shows, at the end of Bad Motorfinger show, the band would finish and walk off stage, and then Kim would start lighting matches and handing them to the audience members. 
For some reason, he thought that was the funniest thing. He'd light a match and then and reach down over the barricade and hand it to people. And he'd like, like light a half a dozen of them and hold them to people. And then we'd all go on the side of the stage and watch these people hold these matches, burning them down. So their fingers are burning like they wanted to keep this flame alive, you know? And, and Kim just thought that was the funniest thing ever. And, and you know, very bizarre. Kim, Kim had another one when he'd check out of the hotel, he would turn the TV on full volume and then hide the remote in the room. And he would always make the, he would always make his bed in the room. Make his bed, hide the remote, and you could always count on him being late for lobby call. No matter how much I tried to, you know, he was too smart to say lobby call was at 3:30 when you meant four. He was too smart for that. So he would always be the last one on the bus. Right. I I, re I remember once. This was after the sound garden broke up the first time. And <clears throat> I'm doing a show in Seattle with somebody and I didn't know, I didn't know Kim was showing up and all of a sudden Kim sticks his head in the production office. I, I had seen him in probably three, four, maybe five years, sticks his head in the production office, looks me right in there and goes, uh, where's the beer? <laughs> what, really, Kim? We haven't seen each other in this long and you're no high. Where's the beer? <laughs> That's your That's opening Kim. line. Oh, funny. But, you know, I remember, I remember seeing him, you know, he, yeah, after, you know, Soundgarden, we, we eventually had a chat. I'm like, Kim, how is it? And he goes, well, you know, every day Sunday, you know, I, you know, I wake up, I, you know, I take a walk. Uh, <laughs> it was like life just went on, you know, but I was really happy to see Soundgarden get back together again. That was, that was, that was really wonderful. I got a chance to see him a couple times, got a chance to work a couple shows. So when Steve Dramalski, their production manager, couldn't, couldn't, couldn't do them. Um, man, I have a really, you know, sweet spot in my heart for, for all things Soundgarden and Chris Cornell. So it was, it was, it was sad to see him go. And, and I went on to work for Audio Slave as well. So I got a, I got a second opportunity to work with Chris for an extended period of time. But he was, yeah. he was much more troubled in Audio Slave. And with Soundgarden, <clears throat> he was, this, he didn't really drink. He really didn't do drugs. I remember, I remember one time on the whole tour, he asked for a bottle of Jack Daniels. I'm like, oh, wow, that's interesting. He wants a bottle of Jack Daniels. But he never really partied. But uh, seeing, seeing him, what would have been, sheesh, ten or eleven years later with Audio Slave, uh, he was he was he was different. You can tell that uh, you know things had manifested in his life, and he was a little bit more troubled. Um, yeah. But uh, you know, so so Sherry, your wife, uh, does she still work with Susan Silver? She does. She is working with Susan and they're working on a few projects. She helps her with Allison Chains, who Susan still manages. And she is back in the fold with Susan. And those two are like which and Sundays. You know, right. they, uh, they complete each other's sentences, which is more than Sherry and I can say about each other. Yeah, yeah. We were just talking about uh, Sharon Osborne and how, I mean, uh, uh, Susan Silver equally as impressive. You know, she, yeah. has, she, has, she has a different approach in how she manages and how she, she, she does things. She's, she's maybe more cerebral. I mean, talking to Susan Silver is interesting because you'll, you'll, you'll ask her a question and she'll, you know, she doesn't just spit out the first thing that comes to her mind. You know, she'll, she'll pause, she'll think about it and, and give you a very composed answer, you know, and, a, and I, 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 I'd, I wish I was more like that. I wish I just didn't vomit the first thing that came to my mind out of my mouth every time I, I go to say something. But, you know, it's, I always appreciated somebody who, who can be, give you a composed 
clever, not clever, composed, proper answer. And that, that's Susan Silver, I think. Well, when I, when I worked with Soundgarden again in 94, it was a lot different because when Super Unknown came out, they were just, they were starting to ride the wave. They were just, they got off their board, they were done paddling and they were starting to ride the wave. And that was a very difficult year for me because when you're trying to handle four distinct and very diverse personalities, sometimes it can be a little tough. And after Kurt Cobain passed away, it was even worse. There was dressing room damage in every show and just a lot of, just a lot of stupidity. And I think that they did not have time to properly mourn Kurt because it happened on, they found his body on my birthday when we were in Paris and I had to tell them after the show. And during the show, Cornell pulls me on stage you know, and has the French audience saying happy birthday to me. And then we start wrestling because I wasn't sure what he was going to do to me. I wasn't sure if he was going to throw me in the audience, try and pants me. So he and I are literally wrestling on stage and the whole crowd is cheering. And of course, you contrast that with me having to tell them that Kurt passed away. And that was, that was really... That was really rough. And yeah, I think it really, in my opinion, that's when Soundgarden really broke up the first time was that night because they never seemed to be the same after that. Was, that during, was that during time. Super Unknown or, or, or yeah. down on the upside? No, it was on Super Unknown. And then the next summer, oh, and then after that, after we had done America and we were getting ready to go back to Europe, Chris had uh, vocal cord problems. And we ended up canceling the rest of the tour. Uh, fast forward a year later, I ended up working with them when they went to Europe. It wasn't really an album tour or anything like that. It was just sort of doing festivals and things like that. And things were much better. So my Soundgarden experience is sort of like um, the first part was good. was really good. The middle part, not so good. And the last part was really good. Okay. And, you know, when we, when I went to Chris's funeral, it's like, you know, seeing your, your old partner, ex-wife or ex-girlfriend with a new, with a new partner and a new family. And it kind of made me sad that a lot of the guys that I worked with, like Randy Byro and people like that and Stuart Bennett's and Rich McDonald and, you know, people that, you know, I've been in the trenches with weren't there to, you know, help. And I prefer to say celebrate Chris's life than, than mourn him because it's just, Chris deserves to be celebrated. One of the best voices in rock, an amazing musician, an amazing writer. And the Chris I knew was, you know, he and I used to sit in the back lounge and he would sing that song Lemon by you 2 and he could hit the falsetto <laughs> note pitch perfect. And he and I would just sit in the back in silence and watch movies. And I really appreciated that time. You know, he wasn't looking for conversation. You know, so we would just hang out and watch movies. And I really treasure that time I got to spend with him in the bus, just he and I hanging out. Yeah. Well, how how shocked were you? Were you, were you shocked when he when he when he died? Were you surprised or? 
because I, 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 I was, I was, I wouldn't say shocked, but I was very surprised. I thought he really had a handle on things. I was stunned. Um, you know, because Soundgarden had got back together. They were doing, they were just starting to reestablish themselves, doing theaters. And, and then for this to come out of the blue, but, you know, it was just, it was just, it was shocking. It was upsetting. It was depressing. It was, it was really, I happened to be home and, and Sherry called me, um, Sherry called me in the middle of the night and that's never good. <laughs> you get a call in the yeah, middle of the night yeah, yeah. and told me that, you know, Chris had passed. And the first thing I thought of was, I, I didn't know his, his new family or his new wife or new kids I had never met. But all I could think about was Lily and Susan and then and the three guys in Soundgarden because it happened when they were out on the road and it was just yeah good things or bad things don't happen in the bubble of the tour. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever were you ever lucky enough to see one of those solo shows that he did? He was he was frequenting over the year over the last couple of years of his life. He would go out and it was almost a storyteller set. He would go out there with an acoustic guitar and and talk and and do covers and do different songs from points of his career. Did, did you ever get a chance to see that? I'm sorry, I never did. And that's something that that's one of those things like I never saw Led Zeppelin. You know, I never saw The Who with Keith Moon. It's one of those things that, you know, that you wish you would have had the opportunity to see because anytime, Elton did two years solo and people really got a sense of what a great musician he is because there's no one else to rely on. It's all you. It's only piano and vocals or guitar and vocals and it's all you. If you're having an off night, everybody knows. There's right. no hiding, you know, within the structure of a of a band show. Yeah, 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 yeah. Chris, and a, a sad story, you know. And I, 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 I remember after you sent me that text um, saying that he had passed. I, 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 I was in rehearsals. I wasn't like in a hurry to get up and, and move. And um, I went and listened to. Euphoria Morning, his solo record, the, the 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 song Sweet Euphoria, that it's just like him and a guitar and a really heartbreaking song. I remember listening to that, you know, uh, a little tear came to the eye. Yeah, uh, yeah, very, very sad, very, very sad. And it was a very touching song to listen to at that time. But moving on, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you and I went, you know, because you and I worked together. We've worked together since the 90s together, but we worked together a lot from Ozzy to Soundgarden. And then we wanted to do the cult together. I know this wasn't <laughs> necessarily one of your favorite projects that you like to, to, to call back. But, you know, we did a lot of work with the cult. I mean, myself through the 90s. I wonder if I did more shows with any other band than the cult in the nineties. It's, it's hard. I'd be hard pressed to, to say that, you know, there was somebody else. I mean, I did three full touring cycles with them around the world. Uh, and you were, you were, you were there for one of them. You were the tour manager for one of them. What would, r remind me what cycle you were there for. Well, I'll never forget this. They, I don't know what happened to their other tour manager, but you suggested me and I, they flew me up to Vancouver. I spent the night and I met all the guys. And well, I met Ian and Billy because the bass player and those are the guars, guys. The drummer there seems to be 
uh, different guys each one. Or each time they go Revolving out. door. Every time I went out with them, there was a different guitar player, bass player, drummer. I mean, yeah. it's, 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 it's Billy and Ian, the, what the, the constant. <laughs> That's what it is. So, and I remember going to see him in rehearsal, you know, because I love the, the electric record. You know, it was Little Devil, or excuse me, Lull Devil. And, <laughs> and, you know, songs like that on the record. And they hired me. And it got off to a bad foot. We were supposed to fly from Vancouver to New York. We were doing a bunch of stuff. They were going to be on the John Stewart show. They were going to be on MTV. I remember that. We, we did that show, yeah. Yeah, we had. We were supposed to be at Toad's Place. We had all kinds of stuff planned in New York. So we get on the plane. We fly and change planes in Portland. We're just heading out. And, you know, we're, we're just taking off. And we're not, you know, we're... We're not leveling off at altitude yet, but it started to smell like really bad chicken. And it, and it turns out that the plane had hit a flock of geese and, you know, a couple of them got inhaled into the engine. And so we immediately turned back around and, you know, and here I had to change the flights for like five people and everyone's, you know, yelling at the poor, the poor person behind the desk which is one thing I learned is to always be nice to everybody. It yeah, took me a long agreed. time to learn that, but, you know, it's not the person's fault that's trying to help me. So we ended up flying. We had to go to L.A., and then we took a red eye from L.A., and then we're almost at the hotel, and there was a bomb threat. I mean, we were, we were a block from the hotel, and the police had it sealed off. So I called the hotel. And I said, what can we do? We're out here in vans on whatever street it was in New York. And they said, there's a secret entrance. So pull up to the corner, this and this. So we pulled up to the corner and the hotel met us there with like three bellmen. And it was fantastic. They got us in, they got us to our rooms. And then like five hours later, we had, we had a full schedule of stuff to do. But that's that was my first... That was like my first or second day with a cult. Right. And how long, how long, how long did you work on that one? Did you do you do the whole cycle? No, I did Europe with them because after New York, we went to Europe. I did Europe and then I did the big day out in Australia. Right. New Zealand. And then after that, we went to Hawaii and I had enough. I yeah, said, yeah, yeah. Oh, I remember here. Hawaii. That's right. I said, life's too short to wear uncomfortable shoes. I've had enough. And he said, his classic line was, but you get to go to Hawaii with him. He said, you had me at Hawaii, you lost me at them. <laughs> so they ended up hiring the, in Australia, I call them our interpreter, but they, on the big day out, they assigned like a tour manager type guy to help yeah, us yeah. out. Michael, us Michael Oberg was his name. Yes. Michael Ober, and he would drive us, you know, to and from the gigs and things like that. And they ended up hiring him. He's still but in the industry. He works for the Killers, I think. Oh, does he? Good for him. Yeah. Okay, so so at, long after that, is that's the last time we worked together. But uh, you, what was it? Uh, was it a relationship with Roger Davies that got you? You started working for Roger Davies artists, didn't you? Like Sade and Tina Turner and, and whatnot, right? Was that your next I step? I did. I first met Roger when I was doing merchandise for the Tina Turner tour in 1987. And then through my relationship with Rusty, Rusty brought me on board to be the tour accountant for Janet Jackson 
who Roger Mar- married, right. <laughs> managed at the time. Well, there's a Freudian slip. So Roger managed Janet, and then from there, he hired me to do Sade in 93, and then I went, and went ahead and did Tina in 96 and 97. And then when Elton took a summer off, I was able to work with Sade again in 2001. Yeah, and Roger, one of these other managers that I am, he is incredibly smart. He doesn't miss a thing. He is, I'm fortunate to work with some incredibly smart people in this business that could be successful anywhere they choose. And I was very lucky, again, to have another sort of mentor, confidant, whatever you want to call it. But it was great working with Roger, and I hope to work with him again. Yeah, yeah. We Matt and I podcasted with Malcolm Weldon some time back, and he was saying the same thing about uh, Roger Davies, just how I'm, you know, a bit of a mentor he was, you know, a very clever man. I've never had a chance to work with him or meet him or come anywhere near an Eva's artist, but... Uh, you know, the, the people, you know, like the shares and the Tina Turners and the Pinks, you know, and Janet for a while and Sade. I mean, they all, they, they all swore by him, you know, still do. They do. I mean, he's been with Tina. I mean, he, he really helped Tina after she left Ike. He really helped Tina become a global superstar, you know, because it doesn't always take, it takes talent plus. I mean, Tina obviously is very talented, but without the right plus, there's no becoming, you know, Tina's another one of those one name celebrities. If you say Tina, you know, it's Tina Turner. So he really took, he really took her career to dizzying heights because in 96, we were doing stadiums. We did three Wembley stadiums. Then we came back at the end of the year and did four or five Wembley arenas. So we started out uh, doing arenas then we went to stadiums, then we went back to arenas. And it was it was an amazing time. I mean, just to see that level of passion and support for an artist. And it was just, you know, I always like to go out and, and look at the audience and watch the audience during the first song. Because, you know, everything we do is to build to that moment. You know, through load-ins and everything else and line checks and sound checks. Everything we do is to build to that moment when the show starts. And the audience, you know, you can hear the roar of the crowd. I mean, that still makes that still makes me tingle a bit when I hear the roar of the crowd and I know I know what they're in for. They're in for a great time. And they're there for two or three hours to forget what's going on in their life, to be entertained. And we are truly blessed to be a part of that, to bring, to bring, you know, shows like that to people so they can have entertainment for the night. Yeah, I agree. Matt and I talk about this all the time, how the, the power of, of the house lights going off, you know, what that energy is, not only for the band and the crew, but for the audience. There's that one moment for a split seconds when the house, when a split second when the house lights go off that there's this rush of adrenaline, you know, it's just, it's just a magic moment. It really is. You can feel it. You can. Well, there was one time when we were in Quebec city at the old arena, which I'm sure some of your listeners are glad they blew it up. (laughs) I would have pressed the plunger. Ooh, Ooh, rough one. (laughs) There was one night I was having a really crappy day and I went out there 
And all of a sudden the house lights went on and Elton and the band went into funeral for a friend, which starts out with that low, long, so slow keyboard intro. And just the crowd was so passionate and yeah. so loud. You know, it made me forget what a shitty day I had. Yeah. And this is why we do it to get that kind of reaction yeah. and to, you know, make people happy. We sell fun. Let's face it. We sell fun. Our end product, people love. Yeah. And I think it's going to be, they're going to love it even more when, when cities start opening up and, and arena shows and shed shows start taking place again. Yeah. I think that you will really see, I think the crowds are going to be, not crowds are bad, but I think that they're going to be so much more passionate because you get to appreciate you know, it was taken away from you for like 18 months. Then all of a sudden you're giving it back and you really get to appreciate what, what you missed. Yeah, I, I, I agree. You know, I mean, I've had lots of really, really hard days in my life and, and it, you know, the house lights go off and the show starts and the band's happy. And, you know, the, the, what, do, what do you look for? You, you want that thumbs up when the band comes off stage. That's what you want. You know, when, when the show's over, you want them to give you that little wink, that thumbs up, that the little acknowledgement that, yeah, that was great. And it almost doesn't matter how hard you have to work to get that wink, that thumbs up, that nod. Um, it's, you know, it makes it all worth it, you know, whether it be, uh, you know, whether you had to load in earlier, whether it was a long push to load in or the rigging was awful or whatever, you know, you had a technical issue. It all makes it worth it at that moment. You know, it doesn't matter how hard you have to work. It sure does. One of my favorite things is when you play Madison Square Garden towards the end of the show, the floor starts bouncing. Because Madison Square Garden Arena isn't it on the seventh floor, Chris? Something yeah, like it's, that. Yeah, it's it's well. I mean, the there's the Felt Forum is underneath it, or whatever they're calling that now. Yeah. And then below that is the is the Penn Station. Yeah, and the arena floor, it's got given it just like the old Commodore Ballroom, which we did with the Cult, and the floor will give, and you can see the limos backstage. You know, they're like low riders bouncing <laughs> up and down. I love Funny. that. I oh, love funny. playing the garden for all its all of its challenges and yeah, I agree. You know, I've been to the garden many times with Elton, and you know, Elton loves the garden. It's probably his favorite arena in the world. Really, and I've become friends with the people that work there outside yeah. of work, and it's just you know, it's just a special place. Yeah, it has it has its it has its issues. Obviously, it's small. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's got a low trim. You can't park anything there for the most part. Uh, the challenge of getting everything from the ground level up to, I mean, there's, it's, you know, the, 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 the local one, I see it goes on for days that the, the specifics, the individuality that that place has, but I do like it as well. I do. There's something about a garden show that feels good. Um, but, you know, if you've got a high tech show and, 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 you know, no one, no one likes to do a B show. No one likes to, take their rig and, and break it down or pull hods apart or, or take lengths of truss off your, off your, off your rig. And, and there, a lot of times you just have to do it. You know, you just have to be patient, go in there and figure out how you're going to produce your show in the, in the, in, in the garden with that, the big 48 by 48 foot <laughs> scoreboard that, that, that is in the middle of the arena or however big it is. It's 48 feet from the ground. I don't know how big it is. Maybe it's, maybe it's smaller than that. Yeah, but speaking of the garden, did you do did you do the Elton John Billy Joel tours? 
Yes, I did. I, my first, it was, I started with Elton in the fall of 97, and this would have been in January of 98 that Elton and Billy toured Australia, Japan, and New Zealand. And then we went on to do arena shows, and then we did some baseball stadiums in America, like Nationals Park, uh, Wrigley Field. I'm trying to think of what other ones we did. Well, we did a bunch of ballparks, and we were bouncing back between ballparks and arenas. And so, yes, I was part of that. I'm, I'm sure those were great as well. I mean, that's that's got a different dynamic. Uh, oh, it sure does. You know, it's like you have to share example, on that. My example was it's like being single and all of a sudden having a wife or a partner that you have to really take, you know, we do things, you know, we do things our way. Billy does his things way, his way. So we have to meet in the middle and, and compromise. And Bobby Thrasher is amazing. I love working with Bobby. He has the right temperament, you know, because we have our personalities and he has his folks and you would go into our office it'd be like a library there'd be no music no one would be saying anything you go into billy's production office there's a buffet people are bringing by food it's like an italian wedding there's so much <laughs> food and people are dropping by and it's like a uh, having an open house if you will but uh it worked and for the fans it was three and a half hours of fantastic music you know, Elton did a, Elton and Billy started together. Elton did a full set. There was like a 10-minute intermission. Billy did a full set. And then Elton and Billy came out with both bands. And, you know, they did Elton songs. They did Billy songs. They did a couple of covers. But for the fans, what an amazing show. I mean, there was no lull in it, no break in the action. You know, you had two guys, very competitive, very, very amazing musicians, top of their game, trying to outdo each other. And when they would do the piano solos back and forth, you could see the look on both of their faces. They'd play something, you'd be like, top that. And then the other one would play something and they'd be like, well, top that. And it, and it just oh, went yeah. back and forth. And it was an amazing show for the fans. Oh, I can imagine. So, so... Working with Elton from 1997, that's you're coming up on 25 years. Yes, I am. With, with just pretty much one artist, other than maybe that break that you did with Sade. I mean, wow. How did, did oh. you do? You, do you ever wish you could break it up and do other things, or, or, or you know, hey, I work for Elton. It's great. I can't imagine it being better. So I'm, I'm happy. You know, at sometimes there in the back of my mind, I'm. I'm wondering if people are going to forget about me when the farewell goodbye yellow brick road ends because I've been associated with one artist all those years. And I felt it was important for me to do Sade to not only transfer the skills that I learned through Keith Bradley on Elton, but to bring them over to another tour with different personalities because I am, Keith gives me free reign. And as long as things get done, you know, it doesn't, doesn't, you know, I'm free to do things how I see fit as long as they get done. And it was been such a blessing working with Elton. It's, that's the washer. I didn't hear it. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, it's been such a blessing working with Elton that 
the first record I ever got was Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Really? And I remember opening it and seeing Nigel. And I'd never heard that, you know, I have to remember, I grew up in a really small town in Arizona, halfway between Phoenix and Flagstaff. And looking at the Gatefold album, you know, I had never seen the name Nigel. And I thought that Elton had a female drummer because Nigel was wearing a crop top and he had, you know, had his bangs cut and he had long hair. And I'm like, damn, Elton John has a female drummer. I'm like, that is so cool. And then I started to listen to the music and a lot of it I didn't get because I was only 11 years old. I didn't get the, you know, the English references and things like that but elton has has been in my life you know for decades since i was 11. i would say goodbye yellow brick road was in the first 10 records i ever owned absolutely you know okay so working with elton i mean i i know we've had this conversation about it and i've heard it from other people he he has a proclivity or or, or a habit of of, of naming people and his crew especially the men <laughs> with a with a with a lady's name you are correct, sir. Yes. So everybody who's been with him for a long time, Elton refers to them. He doesn't call you DC, does he? Yes, he does. He, okay, but... he does call me DC, but I started out as Ms. Moneypenny. Then I became Roseanne Cash. And then I became Shanghai Lil. And recently I became Honey Boo Boo. <laughs> so those are my drag names. Okay, so but he does that with with all the people he's he, he holds dear in his life. He he you know the, the males, the men in his life that are whether they work for him or not, they all have female names, right? You are correct. What are we're not not necessarily identifying who with the name, but what are some of the funny names that he's he's given other people? Um, he had his old valet who I just love. He was Brenda. And so sometimes in the itinerary, I remember we were on the way to the gig and I picked him up at the airport and he was going over the itinerary and he goes, he goes, I want Brenda's name changed. I want it to be Dame Brenda Stench on loan from the Egyptian Museum of Archaeology. So sure enough, it was in the itinerary like that. We had one other person in the itinerary that was the tour fluffer. And he just, you know, he, he has got such a fantastic sense of humor. He is one of the funniest people I've ever worked with. And I've worked with some, well, I haven't worked with any literal comedians, but I've worked with some, with some funny people. And he's probably at the top of the list. Okay, so, all right. You, you have to rattle off a funny story. Come on, what, what, is, what, is, a, what is a good example of, of his sense of humor? Oh, good example of his sense of humor. When we were in Japan, his hotel name was Rotocrap. So, and he used to call down to the front desk and Rotocrap. Oh, Loda. Rotocrap is what the Japanese would say. And he would call down just to hear them say, you know, uh, hello, Mr. Mr. Lodaclap. Um, what can I do for you? And then he would hang up and he would do that continually. And it was just, and it was funny to all of us, no matter how many times he did that, because the Japanese are so sincere and so earnest and they thought he actually wanted something except to, you know, laugh at their accent. Oh, how funny. How funny. 
What did, what did your, what was your impression of the Rocket Man movie? Because you know, I, I, I know Elton's history as, as a fan and following the records and listening and, and the, the chronology of, of the Rocket Man movie was a little questionable, I, I feel. What, what, is, what, is the, what is the, when you guys talk about the movie, what do you say? I look at it like a biographical fantasy because there were certain parts that were true and other parts for the story that, you know, like the dance numbers and things like that. But we all, we had a crew showing and we all went in and watched it. And during the sad parts, there was actually some of the roadies were actually getting misty eyed, you know, and I, I thought some parts were incredibly sad. Like when they were all singing, I want love the different characters and I just, I thought it was so well done with the dance numbers and the music. And I'm like, this has to be on Broadway for sure. I, I, you know, my opinion, that was my first takeaway was this movie was, you know, choreographed, written, directed, presented in such a way that it was a precursor to a Broadway show. I think they probably had that in mind when they were making it. Do, do, do you see it that way as well? I'm not sure. I think that they just wanted to put put together and produce the best possible movie they they could do because it represents Elton and Elton's story. And I think they did an amazing job with the movie. And the next time I saw Elton after we saw the movie, I you know, we were talking about the movie and I was telling him the parts that I liked and things like that. And then I said, you know what? I said, I just have to give you a hug after seeing that. So I gave him a big hug and you know, oh, honey boo boo. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't quite honey boo boo then. That that was that was that was right around the end. That was right around before COVID hit. I became honey boo boo. Okay, all right. So you're you're you've been, she's you've been home. What do you, what what have you been doing the last you know last sixteen months other than growing your beard and listening to Van Halen and getting stoned all the time? I mean, what 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 are you what have you been doing with yourself? I have I small, bought a small drum machine, so I've been making digital noise. Really? I, okay. How fun. I, read, I started reading a lot more, so anything that looked interesting, I would read, whether I just finished a book on the last six weeks of David Letterman's show. You know, so I've been doing a lot of reading. I putter around the house, like, you know, I did the dishes this morning. I've become a housewife. <laughs> I have kids. <laughs> I've become a house husband. That Sherry goes out to work and I stay at home. I, t you know, hang out with the dog and we go on long walks and things like that. So, you know, I put her around. But you're, you know, you get stuff done. You're, you, 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 are you happy? Are you, are you feeling like, uh, you know, are you, are you complacent with yourself? What are you? I'm in a good space now. I had, when this first started, you know, the first, couple of months uh, were really rough on me and then last September for whatever reason was just really rough on me there was like a black cloud you know following me around and I just I just it just I just had such a hard time with it because there was no gradual there was no on the farewell tour like okay the last date is March 7th in Sydney which that ended up being the last Elton show because we were all, I was going to be home for a day and then go do an event with him in Houston. And then we were 
going to do some production rehearsals at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville and then go up to Indianapolis and start. And the thing is, nobody knew anything. I mean, it's one thing, let's say, if Elton's sick or, you know, gets hurt somehow, we have a return to work date. But on this, you know, as Keith Bradley would say, how long's a piece of string? You know, there was... Right. There's no work dates and it was just really rough on me because I was lost mm. the first couple of months because you're always used to go, 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 go do load in, load out, you know, that all of a sudden you had nothing. It's not like we can work from home. Yeah. yeah. You know? are, are, are you starting to, are you working on Elton stuff now? I mean, it's, you know, there's a, you've got stuff in the distance that you, that you can almost count on, like, like New Orleans on January 19th. Are you, are you starting to put the pieces together? Yes, I am. I have all the band travel done for America, you know, through the end of April and I have the European travel done. I just don't know where we're going and when we're going. I know when they're going home. <laughs> I have the end date, December 16th right. in Glasgow, but I don't, know when we're starting in Europe. And that's the thing that's so frustrating. I mean, I'm ready, willing, and able, but where are we going? When are we going there? Yeah, yeah. Uh, America, America is, is the best bet. Everything everything that I've got planned is, is, is for North America. I mean, it's, you know, we've got a, a big country and, you know, it's, it's got sort of kind of one jurisdiction. I mean, obviously each governor from each state has, has something to say, but uh, you know, Europe is so different. You know, we, we can we can do 40 shows in America and, and spend two and a half, three months, whatever, doing 40 shows in Europe. I don't know. We, we can't, you know, play the UK, but skip, you know, France because of COVID or drive through France and do shows in, you know, wherever, you know, it's 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 going to be a while before, you know, between COVID and Brexit and all these other crazy bits and pieces before we can really in, plan a tour in earnest of, uh, of Europe. What do you think? Well, we've planned our tour. It's laid out. We're starting September 1st in Berlin and we're finishing December 17th in Glasgow. This year? I'm, this year. I'm fairly confident we will do the UK because we don't start the UK until October 31st in Manchester. But you'll and, do that? You'll gear up to do a tour only to do, I mean, I mean well, it, everybody weeks. knows how expensive it is to to launch a tour with rehearsals and pre-production and whatnot to get it out the door. But to not, to be able to do the whole run, you, you would still do just part of it? Yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll do as much as we can, as much as the local governments allow, because the more we miss, the more we have to make up. And they've already moved these dates, I think, twice. So we really want to do the UK and at least that will be done. And then we can go back and pick up the continent, but it all depends on the governments. You know, once we get the all clear, I mean, this isn't something that an agent or a promoter or a manager can help you with, you know, this is like, there's a second hole in the building and you're trying to maneuver, you know, you into the first position. This is out of everybody's control. And that's, that's the thing that, you know, I've surrendered myself to that, that nobody can fix this. It's got to, this whole COVID situation's got to somehow wrap itself up on its own because, you know, we can't control anything just like we can't control the weather. Right. Well, I'm of the mind that we need to eradicate COVID. 
you know, before we try to start trying to do things, you know, trying to test people and work around it just doesn't work. We need to get rid of it and then uh, kind of go back to what it will become the new normal. Yes. Yes. So we'll see what happens. I know that some countries have tested out, you know, having vaccinated seated audiences of smaller capacities. But, you know, like like any other arena band, we can't go out with 100 percent expenses and 50 percent income. Yeah, that's that's just unfeasible. And then how do you tell which people they're not coming to the show? You know, how do you how do you tell? You know, yeah, we can't if do that. the government only allows fifty percent capacity. You know, how do you how do you pick the people that are going to attend the show? Right. It's just it's just lose lose until the governments open things up. What what are you doing uh, with your own? Are you going to try to create your own bubble? Are you going to what what's the, what's the mandate as far as the vaccination for touring personnel? Well, you cannot force someone to get a vaccine. Agreed. And you just, you can strongly encourage them. And I think most of our guys and gals are getting vaccinated, but you absolutely cannot force someone to oh, get a I vaccine. Agree. Well, well, what about the person who is not getting the vaccine? Do you still take them out? You know, that's a, that's a difficult question to answer because it's the kind of thing where, I mean, it's one thing if it's a sober tour if it's a completely sober tour and someone's getting drunk on the bus, that's more, that's more realistic and perhaps sending that person home. But I'm not sure in the U S if you can, if you're not vaccinated and you know, you're on the tour, I don't know if, if legally you can tell someone you cannot work unless you're vaccinated. I don't know. I don't know. I, don't know. I, 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 I think the I, I talk to a lot of people and I ask this question a lot. And uh, more often than not, it's no. If, if you want to work on this tour, you're going to be vaccinated. We're not going to make you do it, but you're not going to get the job. You know, we're, we're there's going to be someone standing behind you waving their hand going, well, I'll do the job and I'm vaccinated. You know, it, it's it's there's too much risk. There's just too much risk. You know, you got to create your own bubble, you know. We you can't do. afford to be the liability. You know, if, if the tour has got its own bubble and everybody's safe, then it almost doesn't matter what the stagehands are doing or the local security or the local caterers or whatever, because, you know, the tour is protected, you know, because that, when I'm going to a vendor, a trucking, busing, lighting, sound video, I'm going to request vaccinated people. And we'll do the same. And they'll only send out people who were vaccinated. And then then that will be, that will be the, you know, the alert to the people working for that company. If you'd like to work, you need to be vaccinated. And I don't know. I don't know. I I, I agree with you. You can't make anybody, you know, but I don't know. There's just too much money at risk. I mean, that puts a tour at risk, right? If you get an unvaccinated person and all of a sudden they get sick in the middle of a tour, I mean... I mean, that's that's difficult to backfill that position, especially if it's a critical position, right? And I mean, that's just a, a huge risk. Exactly. I, I mean, I would feel, I'm in agreement with Chris on this, obviously, just from the standpoint of, I don't think anybody's gonna wanna take that risk of, okay, you're not vaccinated, we'll bring you up, but then they get sick and then that puts yeah. you in a tough- Oh, place. you open yourselves up to all kinds of liability. Yeah. Well, I mean, what, what about a, a year down the road? A year down the road, what, what happens when, you know, 
therapeutics are, are stronger. I mean, it could be as simple as someone gets COVID on the road, the rock dock comes down and, and has a certain treatment procedure that they go through much like they would with the flu or, or whatnot, you know, so maybe, maybe, but, but initially, you know, I think it's important for us all to s- s- take a stance and go, let's eradicate this disease so we can get back to work. You exactly. Know? Exactly. So dude, you're going to keep this beard. You've got, you know, everybody who's listening, DC's got a Billy Gibbons length beard here. I mean, it's, it's crazy. So you, you started growing that beard the, the day COVID started, right? Yeah. Um, and I just thought after it started to get out of hand, I just thought, well, I'm just going to keep it and let it get more out of hand. Yeah. But, uh, well, you, 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 you know, you've always wanted, you're, you're a guy that loves to entertain. You love making people laugh. You, you, you're, 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 you're that guy. You're the, you're the, the, you know, the kid in class who's, who's goofing off and annoying the teacher. Uh, and that's just another thing that your, your beard is. Your beard is just another thing to annoy and make people laugh, isn't it? It's an endless source of amusement. In fact, I've named my beard Frank. So it's Frank Beard, just like the drummer in ZZ Top, who Frank does not have a beard. Correct. Ironically enough. So this is my beard, Frank. And hopefully your listeners will be able to see it in person as we go out and about on the road. Yeah, very cool. Well, I, I have to say, I enjoyed catching up with you, my friend. You know, it's been a while, uh, you know, uh, I, I, you know you're, you're the guy that stays in touch with me more so than, than the other way around. And I appreciate that. I, I need to learn to be a better friend to all my friends and, and just stay in touch <laughs> more. And just, you know, I, you know, I'm that awful person who forgets my own family's birthdays. You know, I mean, I, I'm not, I just, for some reason, I just need to fix my fix myself and then be a, be a better friend and family member, I guess. But, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is thank you for, for being a friend and staying in touch all these years, man. I, I my value pleasure. Our friendship. You are one of the good ones, my friend. Oh, that's good um, to know. One thing that I've, COVID has made me a better friend because I actually have time to spend with my non-industry friends, either on FaceTime or on the phone you know, there's a couple of friends that I have a weekly happy hour with. Oh, wow. And it's really, you know, I have a friend whose dad recently passed, so I was able to be there for him. Because if I'm in Europe, with the time difference and things, it's very difficult to actually focus on somebody else's situation when you're trying to focus on there's no diet Sprite in, the, um, in catering. You know, right. it's, it's much easier to focus on, you know, your personal relationships. So that's one thing I'm, I'm grateful for because I'm friends with like five or six people I went to college with and I've been able to stay better in touch with them and have regular contact as opposed to, you know, I'm in Budapest. Sorry, can't talk. I know your dad died. Sorry, click. Uh, well, yeah, you're right. You're right. You know, that's the one thing, you know, and that's why, you know, Matt talked me to doing this podcast, you know, it's, 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 it's the, the, the pandemic has brought some, some, some decent things. And this is certainly one of them for me in my life. Uh, and I thank you, Matt, for that. Um, but yeah, staying in touch, being friends, being close, you know, being there for each other. Totally. So hopefully we can continue doing this, my friend, you know? And, yes. Uh, uh, thank you for doing this with us. You know, Matt, do you have anything for DC? 
No, that was great. I, I had no idea what this was going to be like. So um, it happened so quickly and to you know, hear the story and the longevity with you and Elton John and it's fantastic. So yeah, I hopefully we get to meet in person sometime. I'll, I'll be keeping an eye on the, on the tour docket there. And if I see Elton coming around, I might ping you. So we'll see. Yeah. Let me know. Just if anything, just to come and feel Frank Beard. Well, yes. I mean, I'm afraid people are probably going to refer to you as Frank and not DC, you know. That's I, um, Do you condition that? Yes, I, I shampoo, <laughs> condition it, and brush it every day. Oh, fantastic. Well, it looks it. It looks it, you know. It's, it's not. Uh, it, it looks, it looks maintained. It looks maintained. You know, it's funny. When I put on a backwards baseball cap, I, I look like a roadie. I mean, I, I look like, you know, I could be, I could just be stepping out of an Ego Trips truck or, you know, a bus driver. I mean, I've got that, I've got that roadie guy beard. Oh, fantastic. Well, you, you know, you, you're, as a tour manager though, you've never been, I mean, there's tour managers that dress very smartly. They come in and Hey, they've got their loafers on and they've got their button down shirt and they look really smart. You've, you've always had more of a, a, a truck driver, a drum tech, you know, casual. Casual, we'll call it casual. Car, cargo chic. <laughs> no, I um, rocket cargo chic. I, you know, I like, to, you know, because I'm in the office so much and moving around and I'm not at the hotel all day, I would rather not wear a $1,500 suit that could get ripped or stain that can't be clean. Instead, I'd rather go with, you know, a polo shirt and cargo shorts. Yeah. Didn't you and I have a conversation about 30 years ago that neither of us had ever done dry cleaning before? <laughs> I, still, I, I still haven't. I, I, I don't believe I've ever had a piece of my personal kit dry cleaned in my life. I just wow. never have. I remember when I, one of the first things you told me when we met is no dry cleaning and no haircuts. <laughs> well, I picked up one of those. I, I, I've, I've had several. I'm actually cutting my own hair now. I don't believe it or not. Are you really? Yeah, I, bought, I, I bought a, I bought some clippers, you know, and I've just been taking it down with the number, you know, whatever it is, the inch long guide on there. So number 12. <laughs> so some days it comes up better than others, you know, but uh, hmm. it's cheaper. A pair of clippers is cheaper than one haircut. You know what? I believe uh, there's a barbershop around the corner here called Rudy's. They have, they have them, you know, throughout the country and I have my person there. And I'm loyal to her and I make sure that I, you know, tip well because COVID's been hard and not only us, but folks like, you know, hairstylists and restaurant folks, totally. you know, any, any sort of job that relies on dealing with the public. So I, I make sure that I take care of them, Good you for know, you, man. even, Good for you know, even in this time of economic sort of turmoil, if you will, Good. make sure I take care of the folks that, um, that do a lot of great stuff for you. I agree, man. I agree. I'm going to, I'm going to tip the next person I see. How about me? You're looking at me. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Do you, do you have Venmo? I do. <laughs> All right. Thank you, my brother. Please give my best to your, your lovely wife, Sherry. And if you, you know, anybody else in the Seattle gang that I know, you know, the Susan Silvers of the world, you know, please give them my best. And uh, I look forward to seeing you, man. I really do. January 19th in New Orleans. Actually, I, I, probably I, I, voting I, in at least one day before. I, ho I hope I'm not here, but if I am. I, I hope I, you're I gone. I hope, I hope I'm gone too. I hope yeah. I am. Thank you, man. Thanks, Matt.
Yeah, and uh, and uh, always uh, Dan Cleary for the music. Thank you so much. And uh, and uh, leave a review Glad if you like us. If you like Matt or DC or he's <laughs> Frank Beard, uh, you know. Right on. Yeah. Thank uh, you, everybody. Really, Thanks, DC. Come on. Someone write a review saying they wish they could see DC's beard. I want to see that. I'm I'm afraid afraid of can't come from you though. Because it's it's awfully easy to hide behind the keyboard. <laughs> right on, guys. I'll see you. Take care. See you.